The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. You have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, which I hope you do. Open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We continue this morning our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. The record of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, by the Apostle Matthew. We have been looking verse by verse, specifically over the past number of weeks, over what is called the Sermon on the Mount, this first great teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, If you can imagine, a large crowd had gathered, word had gone around of miracles that Jesus had performed, of the great teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, the The crowds gather, the Lord is speaking directly to his disciples with the context of many others listening, including the Pharisees and and the, the scribes and Sadducees likely in this crowd. And Jesus begins explaining to them, really from the beginning, the Beatitudes, what his followers would really look like. I want to draw your attention and introduction to the verses we'll look to this morning, to back to verse 20 in particular, where Jesus gets to this point in his message and he says to the, the group that had gathered, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousnesses of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones that that crowd would have looked at as the religious of the religious, the religious elite. As if if there were anyone who had a chance of making it into heaven, they would say surely it would be the Pharisees and maybe even the scribes more than anybody else that would get there. Uh, The Pharisees had taken the law and they had interpreted the law in such a way where they devised a, a large scheme of lists, of rules, of things that you're to do and when you're to do them and of things you weren't to do. And they lived strictly by those rules. They let everybody else know that they lived by those rules. They gave great evidence of their their own personal righteousness and the fact that they did not break those things that they set forth as things they ought not to do and the things they ought to do. And what Jesus is doing in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount is He is showing them that the law speaks to a lot more than just the external. The Pharisees externalized everything, and they only partially interpreted the law. They, they taught it rightly in, a, in many senses. A lot of senses, a lot of times they didn't. They would exaggerate it and take it to an extreme. But in a number of cases, they, they taught it rightly in the external application, but they never drew the, what the law was saying to the heart. They never drew the internal application, the internal um, implications that these commands held. And they therefore create this external righteousness whereby they thought, I'm all right in the eyes of God. I'm not doing this, and I I am doing this, and and surely God's okay with that. And Jesus comes in, and Jesus speaks, and he says, your righteousness has to be a better righteousness than theirs. It can't just be external. If you really want to get into the kingdom of heaven, God sees the heart. You have to have an internal righteousness that isn't by works, isn't by a list of doing and not doing. And what we've seen is He then explains what he means by that in these 
six different subjects that he covers, six different commands, and we've looked at three of them so far. This is the fourth we'll look to this morning. He breaks them up with this formula. He says, it's been said to those of old, and then he lists an Old Testament command, and he lists that in light of how the Pharisees were only interpreting it externally, and then he says, but I say unto you, and he takes and he applies that same command internally to the heart, how God sees it, how it really convicts us all before a holy God, and not merely gives us a means of making ourselves righteous by our external actions. And so with this formula, we've looked at at three different subjects so far. We've looked at murder and hate in the heart. We've looked at adultery and even lust in our heart. Last week, we looked at the difficult issue of divorce and marriage and remarriage even. And now, verses 33 through 37, we'll look to the subjects of uh, subject of oaths and swearing, meaning meaning taking a, an oath and not, not cussing as we think of swearing, but making a promise under an oath. And what I would title the subjects of honesty and integrity. And so let's read verses 33 through 37 this morning, Matthew chapter 5. Again, you have heard it said that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, Do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Now, I was back in elementary school. Maybe this went on back when you were in elementary school. If you're around my age, I know it did, but some of you were in elementary school a lot, lot longer before I was in elementary school. And so I don't know how far this goes back. But at cafeteria, lunchtime, it, it was a common thing for kids to barter and trade, whatever, especially the more candy-sided elements of lunch that they had, a food that they brought. And I can remember fruit roll-ups, that was a hot ticket item, and chocolate pudding, the little pudding cups, those were hot ticket items. You were the cool kid if you had a fruit roll-up and you had a banana or a chocolate pudding cup, you had the lunch everybody wanted. And sometimes trades would occur at the lunch table, even though it technically wasn't allowed. And, hey, I'll give you my fruit roll-up if you give me your, your, your chocolate pudding cup. And so sometimes the person would would give their pudding cup up, and a, a kid would take it. I never did this. Well, I can't, I'm preaching on lying. I can't lie in church. I don't think to my recollection I ever did this, but I know it was done. You'd get the banana or the chocolate pudding cup, and you'd, you'd tell them, I'll give you my fruit roll-up. And then when you get both, you go, ha-ha, my fingers were crossed. And what does that mean? It means that for some reason the... But what you said in this trade is really a lie, and it's acceptable. It's okay because your fingers were crossed. This, this, this supposedly gave you permission to say whatever you wanted to say, and it really not mean anything, and you can get away with it. And so then what do you do the next day at lunch? Pinky promise. How many of you had the pinky promise? And you got a pinky promise, and that created a, a higher degree of truth requirement in whatever promise is being established. I still haven't figured out if you pinky promise and you got your fingers crossed behind your back, which one wins out? Is the pinky promise nullified by the finger crossing? I don't know. That's where a lot of fights would ensue. And that's why they banned trading food altogether in in the elementary lunchroom. We like to think we leave those things behind in childhood. childhood, But we really don't. (laughs) 
No longer can anyone do any sort of deal or transaction just on the integrity of their word. Not in our day and age, because secretly, everybody's got their fingers crossed behind their back. What they say does not mean much at all. We've devised a way of pinky promising. We have contracts galore for everything we do. Sign here, sign here, initial here, initial here, initial here. And guess what? There are some people that, that cross their fingers while they're even doing that and deny, that wasn't my signature. So now we have witness here and witness here and witness here. And there's people even that deny and lie about that. So now we've got specially certified people who are called notaries who have to stamp and date and give testimony to the witness of the person's signature on the document. Why do we have to build in all of these safeguards and authentications for any sort of legal transaction that occurs? Simply put, because people are liars. Because what's rooted in a little child at a cafeteria lunchroom does not automatically change in a sinner's heart when you become 18 or 21 or 31 or 81. It's still within our hearts that we are a bunch of liars. It doesn't take long to examine culture around us. And honestly, if we could just go back and truly peer into every one of our conversations over even this past week, Unfortunately, truth be told, we all would in some way, shape, or form be guilty of lying. It's a lie, you realize, to exaggerate the truth. Some people exaggerate the size of the fish they caught or the you know, size of the deer they shot. It's a little lie. It's a little fib. It's a lie, though. Sometimes you're in a conversation with a group of people and everybody's talking about fitting into one category, whatever that is. It could be anything, and you really don't fit, and yet everybody's fitting in this group, and the peer pressure thing that you say only exists for the little kids kicks in, and all of a sudden you find yourself speaking as if what's being talked about is true of you. You realize that's a lie. That's speaking an untruth. We lie to make ourselves look better. We lie to protect ourselves. Well, no, that wasn't mine. Well, no, I didn't do that. I don't know how that happened. No, those aren't my drugs in the White House. I don't know where they came from. Like it's a national, it's a national issue thing, and it has been for many, many generations now. Even that people are liars. No one can tell the truth. We lie to get things that we want. Homework. Did you do your homework? And if it's on an honest integrity sort of system, there's a temptation in it. I, I taught a little bit and. A Christian school, and I like to do it just to kind of know when kids are lying and help them get caught in that lie and help them learn the lesson of we ought not to lie. Uh, it, there's pressure to say, yeah, I did the homework. There's pressure to, to lie about what you need to lie about on an application to get a job or to get a promotion or when it comes to even tax filing and tax benefits, for goodness sake. We are a lying people. And the main application that's so clearly put by Jesus is, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is talking about in this Sermon on the Mount, you will be known by your truth. You will be known by your honesty and by your integrity that when you say something, you say what you mean and you mean what you say. In the words of Jesus, you're going to let your yeses be yes and you're going to let your noes be noes. And you don't have to add to it and make an oath and make a promise and swear this and swear by that and swear by that because it's simply enough that you say yes, and it means yes, 
And it will mean yes tomorrow, and it will mean yes a month from now, or you say no, and what you say when you say no actually means no. Tell the truth no matter what. Tell the truth no matter what. It's a lesson my father instilled into me, oftentimes uh, with the can't think of the expression, the rod of discipline to the seat of correction. Um, Often many spankings even coming because I lied here or I lied there. It's a lesson that I hope to instill into my children who even my precious little, my precious little three-year-old girl who's so sweet and adorable, she could lie through her precious little teeth like it's absolutely nothing. And it, it scares me because there's no conviction over it. There's no and maybe you've had children like that, that lying just comes naturally like they're pathological little liars and you have to teach them the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ that no, God says we're to tell the truth. That we of all people who follow the, the Lord who describes Himself as the way, the life, and the truth, that we of all people ought to be people who are known as truth tellers. People whose word counts, who say what they mean and who mean what they say, who tell the truth no matter what, no matter what consequences may fall. I want you to see three reasons this morning why that is so important. Notice firstly verses 33 through 35. We must tell the truth no matter what because God is over it all. God is over it all. We just worded it very vague and generally because whatever it is, God's over it. Whether it's this conversation or that conversation or that object or that object or that place or this place, God is sovereign over all things. We will stand accountable to God for everything we say, for every idle word that proceeds out of our mouth. Now you look at verse 33, and the Pharisees had, had it right partially in their interpretation of an external application. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Now, that's a law given in Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 21. It's written in Deuteronomy, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you if you were to break that. It was wrong. And they rightly viewed that if you made an oath in the name of the Lord and the name of the living God, you were bound to keep that. And it was a great shame and came at great consequence to break that oath to the Lord. However, if you made an oath that was of something less than God, if you made an oath of heaven, for instance, not not the God of heaven, but just the heavens that are above us. You know, that's not as important as God is, and God's a little removed from that. That's less binding, they would say. And if we did it on the earth, the earth would be even less binding than that. And then the temple. They, they developed this whole scheme of oath-making on the object or the person or the place in which the oath was, was, was mentioning, whatever it was tied to it, that, that would make a, an oath or a promise that was given on a spectrum of, of truthfulness or truth-bound, I would have maybe a word, making up a word there, that, that you could, in a way, be deceitful in giving an oath if you only made the oath by Jerusalem and not by the God of Jerusalem. It's really, you could make that oath and not really keep it. It doesn't imply it's not as important. 
Jesus speaks to it particularly in Matthew 23, speaking to the Pharisees. Matthew 23, verses 16 through 22. He says, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. And so if you swore by the temple, it really wasn't that meaningful. It didn't have great consequence when you broke that oath. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. So if you swore by the gold of the temple, because that was devoted to God, I'm not sure their reasoning honestly behind it, but to swear by the gold of the temple meant you were more bound to your word than to just swear by the temple. God's answer to that is, you fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold of the temple that sanct- or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. And now with that historical context, you can read verse 34, and it makes a little bit more sense to us now. But I say to you, back to Matthew 5, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. Nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And so the Pharisees had developed this system whereby they could make these promises, these oaths, and, and as long as God was not mentioned, they would view it as being disconnected from God, as if God, God weren't concerned over it. As if they could make a promise and say whatever they wanted and then not fulfill it and then even give it deceitfully to trick and to scheme people out of stuff and and it not be of any consequence as if it were not a sin before God because they did not say, God is my witness. Jesus says, no, don't you know God's over it all. The heavens, that's his throne. The earth's his footstool. The temple is his dwelling place. The city is the city that is his, the city of peace, the city of the great king. You can't get away from God. And David put it in Psalm 139 very well. Wherever you go, he's there. Ascend to the heights of the mountains and the skies, he's there. Even to the pits of Sheol, he says, there God finds you. There God is. He knows every idle word spoken. He knows the words you're thinking even before you, you utter them. Every word will be judged by God. You can't develop a scheme of how you phrase a promise or how you phrase an oath and think, well, I can skirt around the truth and I can get out of this because I I worded it in such a way. Some read this verse, verse 34, but I say to you, do not swear at all. And they take that to mean that any oath-taking whatsoever is forbidden by Jesus here. And so Anabaptists, if you go back to probably 16th century, Um, The Anabaptist movement, they viewed this very simplistically as God forbidding any and all oath-taking, even in a court of law. And so even when they were charged under law to tell the truth and give an oath that they were telling the truth, they would refuse to do so, and many suffered great persecution because of it. When we read this, you have to ask yourself, is Jesus saying here it would be wrong if we were called into court to take an oath, um, to be put under oath, to give a testimony as a witness to whatever you may have saw? I would say, based upon the entirety of the study of God's Word, a lot of other verses deal with oaths and giving oaths and examples of oaths that we'll talk about in just a moment. I would say, no, God isn't forbidding all oath-taking here. That under the court of law and given a specific circumstance where you need to emphasize the fact that you're telling the truth, uh, it is permissible and even right to go under an oath to, to 
elevate the, the fact that this is the truth that is being spoken to. Why would I argue such? Well, really quickly, Genesis 22, verses 16 through 18, God swore by His own name. God took an oath under His own name. Um, they're giving a promise to Abraham. In Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13, we read these words, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him and shall take oaths in His name. God commanded His people, take an oath by the living God, by the name of Jehovah only. Jesus, even in Matthew 26, verses 63 and 64, was charged by the high priest to answer his question under oath. And Jesus answered that question. He did not say, it's, it's wrong for me to answer this question under oath. Paul, uh, in a number of places, wrote in the form of an oath, where he says in 2 Corinthians 1 and 23, he makes this promise and he says, with God is my witness. And so that's the form of an oath. Galatians 1 and 20, Paul assured them before God that he was not lying and was telling the truth. That's a form of an oath. Philippians 1 and 8, he says, God is my witness. And then he goes on to make these statements. And so by those examples and verses, I would say Jesus is not categorically condemning any and all oath-taking. He's dealing with specifically average daily conversation and communication here, and especially in light of the Pharisees' way of using oaths to avoid being bound to what they say. What he's saying here is that in your daily conversation, in your daily life within your family, in your daily job that you're working, you ought not have to say, well, I promise God is my witness that what I'm saying is the truth. But no, you ought to have honesty and integrity that has been proven over and over again because your yeses are yeses and your noes are noes that you don't have to make an oath to validate the truthfulness of what you're saying. People know the honesty of your heart and the integrity of your heart. They see it and therefore they believe what you say. And if you're at a place where you constantly have to make oaths because really you're just speaking lies and trying to skirt around the truth in everything you're doing, Jesus is condemning that. Don't make these oaths. You don't have to make an oath over everything that you say if what you say is true all the time. Any person that has to do that is one that's known for their lying, their dishonesty, and therefore to actually get somebody to believe them, they have to phrase it in the form of this swearing statement or this oath that is being delivered. You should be known by your truthfulness. Kent Hughes summarized it this way, dealing with what Jesus writes whether it refers to all oaths or just particular within daily conversation. Oath-taking, he said, is permitted but is not encouraged. In civil life, oath-taking, as in the courtroom, is permitted, and when one does so, he does not sin against Christ's teaching. Also, on rare occasions, it may be necessary, as it was for Paul. However, oaths are not to be the normal part of our everyday conversation. In normal relations, oaths should never fall from our lips. Here it is summed up well. Kingdom men and women do not need such devices. Their commitment to truthfulness should be evident to all. It should be evident to all that we who follow Christ tell the truth. And Christ views lying as sin, and therefore we don't lie. We, we tell the truth no matter the consequence. Truth matters to God, and God sees it all. You go over to Acts chapter 5, and there's this story about a young I don't know what age they were, the Bible doesn't say, but it's the younger church. It's in the early church, Acts chapter 5, a couple that owned a piece of property, and they sold this piece of property for a sum of money. 
Okay, That money was theirs to do with what they wanted. They chose to give a portion of it to the Lord. That's a great commendable thing to the church. And so they gave this offering before the church, and here's where they went wrong. They didn't give it all to the church. They kept some back, which is totally fine. It was their money. It was their property. But they told the apostles and they told the church that they're giving everything that they sold the property for. And so therein they, they lied. And Ananias comes into the church house and Peter has these words for him. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? He says, while it remained, was it not your own? And after you sold it, was it not in your own control? And, and so what he's saying there is, you didn't have to give it all. It was perfectly fine for you to keep a portion back. But why have you conceived this thing in your heart to say that you gave it all? He says, you have not lied to men, but to God. When you lie, you're not merely sinning against man. You do sin against God. And then in that moment, Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So a great fear came upon all who heard these things. Imagine for a moment if we one by one had to come up and determine, have you told a lie recently? And if you had a lie that was unconfessed and a lie that was being concealed, boom, you breathed your last breath and fell down at the altar up here. How many of us would even make it out alive today? <laughs> this brought great fear into the church house. Uh, his wife came in just after, and the same thing happened to her. Now, why does God have this happen and, and record it for us so that we may come to see lying is a serious thing in the eyes of God? God does not ignore it when we are dishonest people. God will bring judgment. Tell the truth no matter what, because God is over it all. Secondly, because you don't know it all. God is over it all first, second. You don't know it all. Verse 36. Nor shall you swear by your head because you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, some of you are doing a good job at making your hair turn white. I'm getting there. It's, it's happening to me too. But, but his point is, you, somebody's pointing there. That's great. Um, little girl pointing to her daddy's head right there. I'm, I'm there getting there too. You can't control the color of your hair is what Jesus is saying. Who are you to make an oath based upon yourself? Now, what likely is being, many commentators think what's meant here, making a, an oath by your head, meaning uh, similar to what we might say is, I'll cut my head off if blah, 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 blah. So I promise this, I'll cut my head off if not. Uh, similar English expression may be, you know, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. I'll pluck my eye out if, if this doesn't happen, if this isn't true, if I don't fulfill this, if I, I don't do that. And Jesus says, why are you making an oath based upon yourself? You you have no knowledge of what tomorrow holds. You have no ability to determine even the, the hairs on your head, what color they are. You are of no authority to base a judgment of truth-keeping or not upon. If you're going to make an oath, it should be in the name of the Lord because He's the one to whom you will give an account. He's the one to whom you will stand before. James 4 and Verse 14 says, Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a moment and then vanishes away. We are finite. We are limited. And God says, Never ought we to ever say, I, I promise by my own life, or I promise by my own head, or by my own... No, we are not the standard. We are not the authority of truth. 
Let's go to the third point. Truth, tell it no matter what, because God is over it all, because you don't know it all. And thirdly, lastly, because Satan wants it all. God, Jesus closes this little segment up with a very strong statement about lying. For more, or whatever is more than these, he says there at the end of verse 37. For whatever is more than these, whatever is more than just simply letting yes be yes and no be no, for you devising a scheme by which you can skirt the truth and deceive and get out of what you're saying, for you to be known for dishonesty and have to use oaths in order for people to actually halfway believe you, for whatever is more than these is, is from who? From the evil one, is from Satan, is from de- the devil. You realize lying is against the nature of God. Numbers 23 and verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie. Titus 1 and verse 2, it says God cannot lie. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18, it says it's impossible for God to lie. He is the God of light. He is the God of truth. Lying is from the devil. It's from the evil one, from the deceiver. John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking again to the Pharisees. In verse 44, he says to them, You are of your father the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So when you enter into a lie, you are following your father, the devil, not your father who is in heaven. Adrian Rogers, a good old wisdom nugget of truth that he is known for, his little statements, one that regards this, you're never more like the devil than when you tell a lie. You're never more like the devil than when you tell a lie. You are in his playbook. You are living his life, his being. You, you are entering into his footsteps and following in his pathway when you enter into lying. Jesus warned Peter in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And I think it's so true of all of us who are the children of God, who are truly trying to follow after Christ. Satan desires to sift you as wheat. He's a roaring lion, Peter says in 1 Peter, roaming about seeking whom he may devour. He loves nothing more than when one who is called to be of the light and be of the truth enters into deceit and lying and dishonesty and in, in darkness. When we exaggerate a truth, when we cover up a, something that, that we're hiding because it makes us look bad or it might ruin a transaction that's going through or so many ways, small ways that we think are inconsequential that God sees and that Satan rejoices in. Lying is of the devil. The truth is of Jesus. We must speak the truth and tell the truth no matter what because God is over it all. You don't know it all. And Satan, he wants it all. As we close, I want to remind you and just bring it to the forefront. You realize you being here in this room this morning has set you out and apart from everybody that's not in the church house this morning. Your neighbors... They know on Sunday morning, they see the car leave and wonder, and they know week after week, that person's going to church, isn't he? That's the church-going family there. You, your co-workers at work, they know by the things, by the way that you talk and, and 
even in conversations that come up, hopefully they, they realize that's a Christian, that's a believer. They believe, they, they believe they're following Jesus and there's something special about Christ and this Bible, supposedly. Your family that's lost, extended family, they, they likely know you're a church-going person. You're, you're supposedly following the Lord Jesus. They're, they're watching you. They're, they're looking at your life, and rightly so. Jesus even said a few verses back from this. We looked at it. He says, the followers that, that come after me, they will be the salt of the earth, and they will be like the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. The light is shining. And hear me, people are watching your life. And if they look at you, and they see deceit, and they see dishonesty. It's not just you got to be this way in church and then run your business or live your life throughout the week however you want. No people are watching that. They ought to look to your life and my life. And no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, no matter what important business transaction we're going forward with, no matter what struggle or problem we're dealing with, no matter if we're in the front yard talking or if we're in the foyer of the church, they ought to look to our life, Jesus says, and they ought to see honesty and integrity. They ought to hear truthfulness, and you ought to be known as a person whose word is to be trusted. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Pretty simple. Pretty honest truth. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we pray. First of all, we ask your forgiveness for our many failures. Because if we're all honest in here, there are many times that we have failed to follow you in light of this word. Many times that we have exaggerated the truth, that we have skirted around the truth, that we have covered the truth, even times that we have purposefully spoken lies cover it up to avoid it. Lord, forgive us of our faults and our failures, our sins before you, and give to us the strength to do what you command. In Christ, we're given your spirit. We have that ability because of your grace to be people of integrity and honesty, to, to truly yet our, let our yeses be yes and our noes be no. So Lord, in this room, if there's any who need to fall under conviction, any who need to repent, I pray you lead them in that. If there are any who just need to ask for strength and being witnesses of the truth and being speakers of the truth, give us your grace, your strength to do that. Lord, if there be any in here that don't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray even now in this invitation, they'd get that settled. They'd leave here this morning knowing they know you as Lord and Savior. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.